And I want to introduce today's text. Um, Brad gave me the assignment in, in our series, or the series that he's doing on the historical Jesus, the year-long series. He gave me a, the assignment uh, this week to talk about the prophecies. And I said, okay, <laughs> I don't know much about the prophecies, but it was wonderful because the lectionary text actually lays it all out. Um, and so I kind of dived deep and, and found it very interesting. It, we don't hear from all four, thank goodness, of the, <laughs> of the text. We'll hear from just two. But they span the entire biblical saga from 2 Samuel where we hear about King David and his rule and how he thought of himself as king uh, all the way to the other end of the Bible and the opening lines of Revelation uh, praising Jesus who is and was and is to come. There's also a selection from Psalm that talks about how the Lord promises he will sit on the throne a son of David. There's a prophecy. And finally we have and we will hear the famous scene with Jesus and Pilate where Pilate asks, what kind of king are you? Um, the drama is all there. The hope of legacy, of eternity, the dreams of visionaries, the search for truth, even Pilate asking, what is truth? And this background is the perfect lead into Advent because it allows us, it invites us to explore what each of us is hoping for, is sure of. The kingdom of David fell. Jesus was set before the Roman courts and tried. And the author of Revelation, a visionary named John, is exiled to the island of Patmos because of his belief in Christ. What are we to hope for? What prophecies will foretell it to us? And at what point in the future will it come? Let's listen to the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on this account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The second reading is from John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. 
What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So, you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? Holy wisdom, holy word. Remember Y2K? Remember that? Uh, All the horrible things that were going to happen because our computers were programmed to go only until 1999. Transportation systems would fail, the world economy would falter, news and information media would simply disappear, and we'd be an isolated populace crippled by our dependence on computers. (laughs) But it didn't happen. Remember the 2012 predictions of the end of the world based on the Mayan calendar? Remember those? Planetary alignments and numerological calculations confirmed it. The Earth would align with the black hole at the center of the galaxy, or maybe it would collide with a planet-like object. But however you looked at it, we'd all be done for. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. I looked this up on the internet. NASA even has a page on their website dedicated to this. You can look this up. I love this. I love scientists. Their page is called Why the World Didn't End Yesterday. (laughs) Uh, And it includes the following question and answer. It, It includes a lot of questions and answers, but these two. Question. Are there any threats to the earth in 2012. Many internet websites say that the world will end in December 2012. Answer. The world will not end in 2012. (laughs) I can't say that. I can't say that with a straight face. Our planet has been getting along fine for over 4 billion years. And credible scientists worldwide know of no threat associated with 2012. Why are we still, thousands of years after the writing of Revelation, so in love with the idea of an apocalypse? Or maybe we could ask that another way. Why are we still so susceptible to prophecy in determining how we are to live our lives? Before Revelation, Perhaps the most famous prophetic book in the Bible is the book of Isaiah, and it's also one of the most beloved with its poetic and comforting verses about the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, who will come from the root of Jesse. For unto us a child is born, the virgin will conceive, she will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. Sometimes it's hard to sort out the truth. Because Isaiah also predicts that there shall be endless peace 
for the throne of David and his kingdom. It didn't work out that way. Today's lectionary text that we didn't read includes the last words of King David from 2 Samuel. And no doubt King David was one of the most important figures other than Moses in the Hebrew scriptures, but he was a pretty complex guy, and ultimately an all-too-human monarch, just as kings have been throughout history. Author Michael Coogan summarizes it pretty well, I think. King David is divinely chosen, yet he comes to power as a result of carefully, carefully calculated political and military maneuvers. The Lord is with him, yet he repeatedly incurs divine wrath. In fact, King David, God's chosen, ruled in a decidedly earthly way. He ruled militarily, unifying Israel and Judah, but he also ruled over his friend's wife and ruled over his friend by killing him and a lot of other political intrigues and involving various family members and lots more killing and really ended up kind of a tragic figure. But despite all this tragedy, King David stood for over a century as one of the great rulers of Judah, so perhaps he can be forgiven when he calls himself, and this is from 2 Samuel, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God anointed, the exalted of God, of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. But listen to how this language intermixes the idea of kingship with the idea of a chosen one or a messiah, which we know is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which simply means anointed. These concepts were all wrapped up together in Messianic Judaism, including the idea that the chosen one would bring about the end of days, the apocalypse, or the time when God would sort everything out the good from the bad, the worthy from the unworthy, and a new creation would begin. The question is, what kind of a Messiah? A mighty warlord? A just judge? An anointed ruler that would redeem his nation from oppression? In order to understand the hopes that Jesus' followers attached to him, we have to understand these messianic expectations that were all tied up with the idea of prophecy. Here's a quote from A History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. And now you know how I spend my Saturday nights. I'm kind of weird. Only the cataclysmic intervention of a divinely endowed being could destroy the wicked powers of oppression, restore the people, and rebuild the broken harmonies of the world. And so, over the millennia, the people hoped for the day of the Lord and pinned their messianic hopes onto all too human leaders. And they also spent considerable time in trying to predict just when these end times would come. These kinds of prophecies have been going on for thousands of years, and they continue even to this day. Uh, We're back to December 2012. Another note that I found in my uh, research was pretty interesting, that even Sir Isaac Newton, who who we know as a scientist, we think of him as uh, a great scientific thinker, he was determined to unlock the mathematical key to prophecy. This is deep in our bones. Um, So what of Jesus? How did he proclaim himself? Not like King David, 
we heard in the text today, his response to Pilate. I'm not that kind of king, not that kind of king. My rulership is not worldly. What about his followers? What kind of Messiah did they hope or believe Jesus to be? A king, a redeemer, someone who would restore the world? We also have to understand that historically as well as currently, for Jewish communities, the proof that the Messiah had come would be in hindsight, in the evidence. The world would be healed. Uh, The Garden of Eden would be restored. We would be living in peace. Therefore, the Messiah had come. Therefore, uh, for the Jews of the time, and this is the Jewish-Christian split today, Jesus couldn't possibly have been the Messiah because the world's still a pretty sorry place. And so many of the early Jewish communities continued to look for the Messiah after Jesus died. In one of the most famous instances, only 100 years after the death uh, of Jesus, <coughs> Simon Bar Kokhba led a revolt, another revolt against Rome. And so here you have an example of a military leader with messianic hopes attached to him. And one of the most well-loved spiritual leaders in Jewish history, Rabbi Akiva, proclaimed Simon Bar Kokhba to be King Messiah. Maybe this one would finally vanquish Israel's foes and redeem her. The Bar Kokhba rebellion was crushed by Rome. The Jewish people decided, in hindsight, that yes, he wasn't, after all, the Messiah. And the early Christian, the early Jewish Christians, just a couple of generations after Jesus lived actually blamed the Jews of the time for the failure of the messianic vision. If they would just believe that Jesus was the true Messiah, then the day of the Lord would indeed come. And we have to be very, very careful of this type of thinking because it continues to today and it contributes to a devaluing of the Jewish faith. And I could say a lot more here, but I won't. That's for another time. So how did those first followers of Jesus witness to the resurrection and firmly convince that Jesus would return, that the second coming would bring the end times or the eschaton in Greek? How did they wait for him? How did they explain his delay? How did they remain faithful in their conviction in the face of a longer and longer period of uncertainty? Let's listen again to the words from John of Patmos. Excuse me. Who in his opening to the book of Revelation has these words that we heard. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now John certainly isn't describing a king here, not a worldly king. Him who is and who was and who is to come. This describes a sense of timelessness, a spiritual continuum, the sense of Jesus as always and ever present, available to us now and forever. Compare that to the standard opening of the letters of Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In John of Patmos, the wording sounds much more like the Gospel of John. Between the time that St. Paul was spreading the gospel, which was about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, between that time and the time roughly another generation later that the Gospel of John was written, the views on the eschaton had changed on the end times. So we have to think of this in about three generations. Jesus died and was resurrected with a promise to return. He appeared to St. Paul about a generation later. And another generation beyond that, we have the author of the Gospel of John using terms for Jesus like the Word. Or as the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury puts it, John's Gospel starts with the assumption that if you relate to Jesus, you don't simply relate to another human being. You relate to the eternal self-expression of God. And it was closer to the time of the Gospel of John than to the letters of Paul that the book of Revelation was written. Paul's thinking is still bound up with the Jewish apocalyptic tradition that believes God will punish wicked people and wicked spirits at the end of times. But even Paul's understanding of the end times shifts over the course of his ministry. And he begins to instruct people not just to be ready at any moment for Jesus' return. No, he begins to instruct people, notably the church at Thessalonica, in how we are to live while we wait. While we wait. And John of Patmos describes himself doing just that, patiently enduring, waiting for the coming of the Lord. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom, and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But he still says the time is near. The end times are still, according to the author of Revelation, very close at hand. And in fact, as most of you know, he spends the rest of the book describing in glorious detail just exactly how and when they will come. And it would be impossible to list the number of books and movies and poems and further predictions based on this book of prophecy. But that's not what I find important today. Paul shifts his focus from the imminent arrival of Jesus to how we must live while we wait. And John of Patmos, who has been exiled for his belief in Christ, yet patiently endures in his exile and still shares the testimony of Jesus. What more could we ask of ourselves? No matter our views on the apocalypse or the end of days, no matter our belief in prophecy or kings or judgment, it is how we live our daily lives in faith, endurance, hope, and love that matters. I'll just close with a story about a dog named Hachiko. And some of you may know this story. It's a true story. Um, There's even a movie about Hachiko. And if you haven't seen it, I, I really recommend it. It's lovely. So this is a story of the love between a dog and his owner. In Japan in 1924, a certain professor, Ueno, 
adopted a golden brown Akita and named him Hachiko. And every day for a year, they walked together to the train station in the morning. And every evening, Hachiko returned to wait at the station for the professor to arrive so that they both could walk home together. But one day, the professor did not return. He had died before catching the train home. And yet, still, every day, Hachiko went to meet the train and to wait for his beloved professor. Every single day for the next nine years, nine months, and 15 days, in fact, until his own death. And I like to think that in his death, that faithful, loyal dog was reunited with his loving professor. Over time, Hachiko became known for his legendary loyalty and faithfulness, and a bronze statue was made in his honor that still stands today at the train station in Shibuya. As we look forward to next week, to Advent, may our waiting be like Hachiko's. Faithful, loving, patient, and enduring. And may we too be united with Christ in our own time. Will you pray with me? Lord, it matters not when you come, for you have already arrived in our hearts, where you live and endure and give us life everlasting. For this we thank you. Amen.